0: Just a quick note that today's episode is going to be a rerun. The next season of the Psychology Podcast will begin later this year. I haven't taken any break in five years of doing this podcast, so I thought it was about time to take a step back and think about how I can make this a better experience for you all. Until then, enjoy these episodes from our archives. Kristen is an Associate Professor of Human Development and Culture in the Educational Psychology Department at the University of Texas at Austin. She's author of the Self-Compassion Scales and the book Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. Thanks, Kristen, for being on the show today.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: So uh, your story of how you got interested in self-compassion is interesting. Right the last year in grad school, you became interested in Buddhism and kind of this was an outgrowth of your interest in Buddhism. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, actually, it's interesting because the very first night I went to the group to learn really meditation to help with the stress I was feeling, the woman leading the group talked a lot about self-compassion, which I hadn't really been expecting. And lucky for me, because it really changed the course of my life that one evening. So it kind of it made immediate sense to me. And I started being kinder and more supportive to myself. And I saw the impact almost immediately.
0: Yeah. Is this something that like you've struggled with your life? Like most people kind of having an inner critic that is loud?
2: Yeah, it's funny. I wouldn't say I'm a particularly harsh, you know, have a really harsh inner critic is kind of like an averagely harsh inner critic. Most <laughs> people are, are pretty unkind to themselves. What really made the difference for me is I didn't realize I could support myself when I needed. it. I was more used to relying on other people to help get me through. And when those people weren't available, I was kind of, you know, up a creek without a paddle, right? So uh, this really helped me learn that when I was upset or anxious or stressed, but also, of course, if I was feeling shame or bad about myself, That it was a way I could really be friendly, supportive, and accepting the way, you know, in good times other people would be toward me, but I'd actually just gotten out of a divorce and my ex was not interested in being a kind, compassionate figure to me. (laughs) I had to do it myself, you know the whole thing was really a mess. It was a very messy time in my life, which in hindsight is good because it really inspired me to embrace self-compassion. There's a Buddhist teacher in Scotland who says, the goal of practice is to become a compassionate mess. So really, it's like no matter how screwed up your life is, you can always be a compassionate mess. And if you really see that as your aim, the aim is not perfection. The aim isn't to have all your, you know, you know what together. The aim is just to each moment be kind, compassionate, open hearted. And really, that's a goal anyone can obtain all the time, really.
0: (laughs) Oh, I really love that. A compassionate mess.
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. But it's true. It's like we give up our striving for perfection and we give up this idea that we aren't supposed to make mistakes and we aren't supposed to get it wrong. Of course we are. That's what's being human. But what we can do is approach all of it with kindness and acceptance and compassion and ultimately having our hearts open, at least for many of us, is what we're really after in life, living an open-hearted life.
0: I'm really interested in uh, people with wearing disabilities and kind of showing their strengths and things of that nature. Your son was diagnosed with autism, is that right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Did you see The Horse Boy ever? Uh,
0: No, but I saw an interview with you. Should I see the film?
2: Sure, it was on an Amazon Prime you can rent it. Yeah, we took a crazy trip to Mongolia, riding from shaman to shaman on horseback. Believe it or not, it worked. I very much had no choice in that situation except to be open-minded, and we tried everything, including shamanism. It's really horses. My son responded radically well to being on horseback. That's where he learned all his um, language. So we actually have an equine therapy center now. We run an equine therapy center for other kids. Yeah, but I can tell you self-compassion saved my, you know what, over and over again. I don't know how I would have gotten through, yeah. at least not through in one piece. I mean, I, the fact that I managed to get through and I think be stronger from it is largely due to my self-compassion practice.
0: And I hope you teach him how to have some self-compassion, self-compassion for himself as well.
2: Right? Yeah. No, I do. I do try. You know, I teach to put his hand on his heart and to breathe deeply. So. Aww. Wow. He's a very, very loving, sweet kid, sweetheart. Okay. What is the relationship between mindfulness
0: and self-compassion? There's a very strong link there, right?
2: Yeah. Well, see, the way I define self-compassion is I define mindfulness as one of the core components or really a foundational aspect of self-compassion. So from my point of view, you can't really be self-compassionate unless you're being mindful. So right, to the extent that mindfulness gives us the ability to be with things as they are, even if we don't like things the way they are, but to be with it, to turn toward especially painful feelings without immediately trying to resist or avoid, we have to be mindful of our suffering in order to have self-compassion. If we're just avoiding it, we aren't thinking about it, we're just resisting it, trying to fix the problem, fix ourselves, we can't really hold the space needed to open our hearts to ourselves. Also, if you have self-compassion without mindfulness, what could happen is you could fall into something that looks like self-compassion, but isn't really. Like, for instance, I'm gonna throw compassion at myself to try to make the pain go away, right? I'm gonna put my hand on my heart, hopefully, maybe I won't have to feel pain anymore if I do this, if I soothe and comfort myself. In fact, if you use self-compassion as a way to make the pain go away, you lose your mindfulness, it stops working. So we say self-compassion, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. So in other words, when we're feeling bad, we fully accept that this is how it is without resistance. And yet we also say, oh, what can I do to help? You know, there's that kind, compassionate response. So mindfulness is necessary for compassion. But compassion, I mean, people have various points of view about this. But certainly compassion isn't always maybe even relevant. If you're mindful of eating a raisin, for instance, compassion doesn't really come into play. Compassion also includes being kind to the person who is suffering and also recognizing that this is part of the shared human condition. Sometimes if you're mindful of eating a raisin, I mean, these detailed elements of compassion aren't really relevant. Maybe there's probably no suffering and you don't give compassion to the raisin, right? that you give compassion to a person who is suffering while mindfully accepting that suffering is present. There's a sense of care, kindness, you're emotionally moved by the suffering. Oh, that's, oh, you know, poor thing, um, kindness, support, encouragement, that's the response of the heart. And then also common humanity is, is very, very important, remembering that the human experience is one of imperfection. People often forget this, not logically, they know it logically. That irrationally when they make a mistake or they fail or some big struggle happens in their life, they feel this should not be happening. Very powerful emotional reaction. This should not be happening. Something's wrong because this is happening. This is abnormal. It's As if everyone else in the world is living this perfectly happy normal life with no problems and it's just me who's failed. It's just me who said that stupid comment or just me who got that diagnosis. And that sense of should and abnormality is really um, psychologically destabilizing. It makes us feel cut off and isolated from others. So compassion, compassion actually means to suffer with. The term compassion to suffer with. So with our, when we with, when our own suffering, that means we recognize that this is a shared experience. It's not just us, and that actually allows any moment of suffering when held with self. Passion to be a moment of connection to others. Very, very important for kind of stabilizing us and allowing us to feel, yeah, more loving and connected toward everyone, not just ourselves.
0: It's so obvious that you are very passionate about your research. (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) Well, it's really a way of life. I mean, I guess I'm the classic example of a scientist practitioner. You know, I practice self-compassion in my personal life. I teach people self-compassion. I spend a large part of my time teaching people self-compassion. I've developed a curriculum with my colleague, Chris Germer, to teach self-compassion. So the science for me supplements that, but you know, I sometimes I admit I'm not the total pure scientist because I really study self-compassion to prove what I already know, which maybe is not the most objective stance. Okay. Nonetheless, you know, I know it works. I've seen it work. I've felt it work. So for me, the science is a way of trying to understand how it works and of course give support for it. You do do good science. Oh, thank you. No, I mean it's not like when I say that I'm kind of joking now. Hopefully, I don't let my biases uh, get involved in the science. But you know, I kind of like to be upfront about it because I am passionate about it, and I do believe in it. And I'm not pretending to be neutral. I think because other people, if other people want to show the problems of self-compassion, they're welcome to. I believe in the scientific method, but I've really just been—I've seen so many people whose lives have radically transformed when they started being more self-compassionate to themselves. I know it's a really powerful tool that anyone, anyone can learn to help change their lives for the better. Yeah, I'd I'd like to take your
0: eight-week course.
2: Yeah, well, we just started teacher training. So we've trained about 600 teachers. It's still growing, though. Compared to mindfulness-based stress reduction, we're tiny. Can I be trained? Can, you can. You have to take the course first, but yeah. So you can take the course either in your local community as an eight-week course. We also offer the whole eight-week course and a five-day intensive. You can find it all on the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion website. But yeah, it's really taking off like wildfire. And a lot of teachers teach both mindfulness-based stress reduction and our self-compassion program because they really complement each other. You know, we can kind of talk about explicitly what mindfulness-based stress reduction kind of talks about implicitly. Self-compassion is there, but it's more implicit. Yeah. We really, really explicitly teach the skill, and again, we teach a little bit of mindfulness, but we can't go deeply into it the way it is. So a lot of people are actually saying that taking both programs is very useful. I think so. Yeah. Wonderful.
0: What is the difference between self-esteem and compassion? There is a difference.
2: There is a the difference, yeah. so. When I first introduced the idea of self-compassion into the field, I I introduced the idea, I mean, other people like Carl Rogers had talked about self-acceptance. It wasn't like I came up with the idea, but I kind of was the first to operationally define and measure it. But, so I really positioned it as an alternative to self-esteem because I was actually coming off a two-year postdoc. Working with a self-esteem researcher, becoming very familiar with all the problems with self-esteem. Not that there are problems with having self-esteem, but there are problems with trying to get it right. We know very clearly that, for instance, the reason kids start to bully other kids is because they want to feel good about themselves. It's an attempt to get high self-esteem. The reason people are prejudiced. Self-esteem is very contingent. We have it one moment, and then we fail, and it deserts us. So I was studying all this in my postdoc and I was practicing self-compassion in my personal life. And I realized that really what self-compassion does and the evidence supports this, it offers all the same mental health benefits of self-esteem, right? With self-esteem, great in terms of less anxiety, less depression, more happiness, same with self-compassion, but it's not contingent the way self-esteem is. In other words, when we fail, that's precisely when self-compassion steps in, exactly when self-esteem deserts us. And it's not based on feeling better than others. It's, yeah, all you got to do is be your average, compassionate mess like everyone else. You don't have to be you know, special and above average. And it's not linked to narcissism the way self-esteem is. So, yeah, it seems to be really offering the benefits of self-esteem. It's kind of like a type of unconditional self-esteem. So researchers have talked about unconditional self-esteem. And it's like, well, that's great. But how do I get it? Well, this is one way to get it.
0: I love that. It's like you're married to yourself for better or worse and sickness or health.
2: Yeah. So it's like, do you want to be an inner enemy or an inner ally? That's really the choice we all face. And most of us walk around with an inner enemy inside our own heads, cutting us down, undermining us, pulling the rug out from underneath us. And when we switch that relationship and start being an inner supportive friend, we are so much, we are much stronger, more capable of dealing with adversity. Some people think self-compassion is weak. Is it weak to have an inner ally as opposed to an inner enemy? No. <laughs> it's an no. amazing strength. But people really are afraid that self-compassion means being weak. In fact, yeah. it's a, they do. People have this reaction like, oh, self-compassion, I'm going to be soft and weak and wimpy. Oh, they- but I think people haven't really thought about it deeply, right? So the idea of being kind is seen as weakness, whereas being harsh right. is seen as, as strength. But in fact... Internally, if we're harsh with ourselves, if we cut ourselves down, we are weakening ourselves. We're undermining our self-confidence, whereas if we're kind, supportive, and encouraging, we're strengthening ourselves. But I think people just don't really think it through clearly, and our our culture doesn't encourage it. But uh, if you look at the coping literature, like vets coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance, they find that the level of self-compassion is more predictive of whether or not they'll develop PTSD, the level of combat exposure that they face. So it's wow. absolutely a strength that helps us cope with life's biggest challenges to be an inner friend and inner support and inner ally when we need it most. Sorry.
0: <laughs> I love it, no, I love it, I love it.
2: <laughs> Red, self-compassion.
0: <laughs> By the way, if you uh, were your age you are now in the 60s, mm-hmm. you would be even more popular, I think.
2: Well, I don't know, because, you know, what's beautiful now that wasn't possible in the 60s is a whole field of people who are mixing kind of personal practice, Buddhism, typically meditation, with science, rigorous science. In the 60s, it was a little more hippy-dippy, you know, and and my hippy name is Blossom Free Flower, and I definitely had my part of my hippy childhood. So a lot of these ideas to me, yeah. Who named you that? Who named you that? (laughs) <laughs> my father, oh, it, it oh. wasn't my official name, but yeah, so definitely spent some time in the hippie world. The thing about it is there's an element to it that's, that was kind of flaky, I mean, it's a real genuine good spirituality. I grew up with Ram Dass's Be Here Now coffee book on my table, I think it's a brilliant book, Be Here Now, it's really a mindfulness book before it's time. But because there was a lot of lack of credibility, we got mixed up and a lot of personality cults and things went haywire and things weren't done responsibly, I think. Whereas now with this approach, meditation combined with science, I feel like we've got the good of that spiritual movement, but without the, I don't know, flakiness is the only word I could think of, with more rigor, more more reality, more our feet more firmly planted on the ground in a way that's very useful. So I'm
0: I'm not in the 60s. <laughs> I take it back. You've convinced me. You're the perfect time period to do perfect the work you're I
2: mean, Well, yeah, and really, I um, mean, you know, my work rides on the coattails very closely of the mindfulness movement. If it wasn't yes. people like John Kabazin and Richie Davison and all these people doing rigorous scientific research on mindfulness, my work wouldn't have been as readily accepted. So I definitely came at the right time in terms of other people had done the work for me so I could kind of slot myself in. But Absolutely. I agree.
0: And (laughs) you you developed a scale, a 26 item long. That's the longest version of the scale. And then you have a shorter
2: version. And it measures
0: different aspects like self-kindness, self-judgment, common humanity, isolation, mindfulness, over-identified
2: Yes, the various components. It measures both compassionate and uncompassionate behavior. The scale, because it was kind of the only game in town, has come under criticism lately about its psychometric validity across populations. I just published a new article that uses a new form. It's probably not relevant to your readers, but basically, really establishes the validity of the self-compassion scale using a new form of analysis. So but this is good. It kind of, I just collected a large set, five different samples using a new type of analysis. It really shows, to my point of view, I'm happy with the scale. I think it stands up. Great. Because you've done, there's so many studies that have been done with this scale. Yeah, hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. yeah. And I just
0: want to just review some of the major findings, like really almost like every aspect of life. Human life, you found a correlation. It's just
2: nothing that it doesn't help. Nothing. I can't find anything. Probably not with cooking skill, or you know. But <laughs> yeah, it's a. There's only Sorry. been one published study that shows that it might not be such a good thing for men only who are low in conscientiousness in the context of romantic relationships. It's like a very, and I think what's happening is men who are low in conscientiousness. Usually self-compassion goes with more conscientiousness. you got this weird subpopulation. I think what happens, they found that men with, were low in conscientiousness. If you told them to be more self-compassionate, they actually used it as a way to evade taking responsibility in their uh-huh. re- which I see is they were kind of not really opening clearly their heart to themselves. They were just using it. You can misuse anything if you're clever enough. So that's kind of what I see what was happening. But pretty much, yeah, either it seems to be linked to pretty much all good things psychological. But if you think it's such a deep process, again, being an inner friend, whether an inner enemy, as opposed to an inner enemy, there's almost nothing that that's not going to help.
0: But I was wondering is, can you be really high in self-compassion and really low in compassion for others? (laughs) What if you're like high in self-compassion, but you're low in agreeableness on the big five? What's going on there?
2: in terms of compassion for others it almost never happens i i want to play with some data i don't i can't haven't figured out how i can do the analysis but we created a compassion for others scale using the same components very structurally similar including the same endpoint so you can kind of look at you know how often you're compassionate versus self compassionate almost everybody is more compassionate to others than themselves significantly more so as a matter of fact under among college undergraduates, they aren't even significantly related. The way people treat themselves and others is radically different. In almost every single case, people are more compassionate to others than to themselves. I think that 2% of people, and I'm not sure if I'm doing the analysis right, but it seemed like 2% of people were significantly more compassionate to themselves than others. So I don't know what's going on with those 2%, but it's very, very tiny, right? Yeah. People are much harder on themselves than others. And I think there's reasons for that. But yeah, it doesn't happen very often that you're compassionate to self but not to others.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think it's important that you distinguish self-compassion from narcissism. And it's very clear that there are different things.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, you might say I'm being self-compassionate, which is why I don't care about you, which is why I'm going to blow off seeing my kids and move to Hawaii or something, you know, whatever. That's not really self-compassion. So I think if it's true self-compassion, which is probably why it needs the mindfulness, because mindfulness is where the clear seeing is and just like looking things straight in the face and saying, yep, I own that. I did that. Or this is my responsibility. The mindfulness helps ground us and see clearly. And then the kindness is the, the warm-hearted response to that, and the common humanity is recognizing that it's not just me, this stuff everyone faces. But you need all three components. Otherwise, it could morph into self-pity or narcissism or self-indulgence. Oh, what these- are the three components? Tell me what the three Oh, sorry. Okay. Well, so the three components, and each one kind of has a positive, compassionate versus uncompassionate aspect. So the first is being kind, supportive, and caring to yourself, treating yourself like you good treat a good friend as opposed to being harshly self-critical and judgmental, which is the way actually most of us are with ourselves. The second component involves seeing our imperfection and suffering as part of the shared human condition. This is normal, it's normal to make mistakes, it's normal to fail, it's normal to have struggles, as opposed to feeling isolated in that, as if somehow everyone else was leading a normal, perfect life and it's just me who's failed or who's struggling. And then the third component is the mindfulness, right? Being able to be aware when we're suffering and see it in a kind of balanced, stable manner, a clear-sighted manner, as opposed to what I call over-identification. And that's really a process where we run away with the dramatic storyline of, oh, this is so terrible, it's the worst thing that ever happened, you know? This is bad, and therefore I am bad, so that kind of emotional dysregulation, really would be the opposite of mindfulness. So I call it three components, but if you consider both the positive and the negative aspect it's really six.
0: Oh, cool. Okay, so you need all those components. The-
2: you need all those components because if not, it can morph. Like they say in Buddhism, that pity is the near enemy of compassion. So if you were just... Being kind to yourself, but it had the quality of kind of feeling sorry for yourself if you weren't remembering that, hey, this is, everyone suffers. And if you were, you know, getting lost in an exaggerated storyline of how bad things are, if you weren't seeing things clearly, self-compassion could easily turn into self-pity. We need the mindfulness and the common humanity to keep it from being self-pity and to keep it just being this stable, clear-sighted, open-hearted way of relating to yourself.
0: Are there some people that really shouldn't be self-compassionate? Like, do you think Donald Trump, like, could use more (laughs) (laughs) self-compassion?
2: I don't know what's going on with Donald Trump. I think that's one area that we need to look at more closely. And I'm not a clinical psychologist, but some people have asked me, should you teach narcissists self-compassion? And I actually don't know the answer to that. I also know there are different types of narcissism. And sometimes narcissism is stemming from underlying self-hate. In that case, it may be a good thing. If not, I'm not sure. At this point, I don't think we can clearly say that there's anyone who wouldn't benefit from self-compassion. Certainly some people have a more difficult time with it. People, for instance, who've got with a trauma background, early childhood history of you know neglect or abuse, it can be scary actually to be self-compassionate because those feelings of warmth and care that we hopefully normally got from a caring caregiver. If it gets mixed up with other feelings like fear or neglect, then it can actually activating that whole self-soothing system can actually be a little frightening. Uh, Paul Klobort calls it fear of compassion. So although it is harder for some people and some people have to go slower, I recommend that some people, when they go down the self-compassion path, they do it with the help of the therapist because, you know, really most of us have closed our hearts in response to suffering most of our lives. And we start opening our hearts. There's a term we use for it in our our program called backdraft. Like you let in the fresh oxygen of compassion and the pain comes rushing out. And sometimes it's like a boom. Sometimes it's more mild. But this is normal. But sometimes it does help to have a little support as you're going down the path of self-compassion, in case you get overwhelmed by the pain that you actually touch. But pretty much anyone, so far that we've seen, can learn self-compassion. It just make you just me have to let yourself be a slow learner is all. But people, for instance, with trauma histories, who learn to be more self-compassionate, it's one of the most effective ways of coping with one's past and moving on from it by giving yourself what maybe you didn't get from, you know, your early childhood. So Yeah, And the thing is, it's not rocket science. I think that's the thing that surprised me, That I thought it might be harder for people who are really you know, habitual self-critics to learn these new ways. The thing is, most people have a fair amount of experience being compassionate to those that care about, you know, friends, family members, they know what to say. They know how, the tone of the voice to use. They kind of had a lot of experience being a caring, compassionate friend to another. So all you have to really do is, A, give yourself permission to relate to yourself that way and to remember. But if you just ask people, okay, the way you spoke to yourself right now, would you say that to someone you really cared about? No, I probably wouldn't. What would you say to someone you cared about? And then you get them to do that, and then they, they, they kind of have this tool already. Let me ask yeah. you
0: something I've been thinking about. Shouldn't sometimes you actually be, shouldn't you be hard on yourself sometimes?
2: Well, so self-compassion means you don't see yourself clearly. And in fact, one of the most useful aspects of self-compassion is it allows us to hold our shame. Sometimes we feel shame for very good reason. We've done something really harmful and self-compassion gives us the strength to own it. In fact, people who are more self-compassionate take more responsibility than others for the harm they've caused because they have the strength to hold so self-compassion, it doesn't mean you condone bad behavior. In right. fact, it's the opposite. What it's saying is it's allowing that I am imperfect. And yes, in an ideal world, I would have not made that mistake. Absolutely. But you know, it also acknowledges the truth that we aren't in total control, right? We do the best we can, but we didn't choose our genes, how reactive our wiring is. But we what if
0: you didn't do the best you can? What if like, you intentionally did something bad?
2: Well, so, okay, this is, an let me start getting the philosophy here, right? Yeah, yeah. What is it that made you choose that action in the moment? Most likely that choice was contingent upon thousands of causes and conditions that you actually didn't choose, right? Um, This is, you know, this is kind of a philosophical position and, you know, I I kind of take the more Buddhist view that we are in part of a larger interdependent whole and there's no separate self that is capable of radical choice, independent of all other causes and conditions. So really the wisdom of self-compassion is saying, hey, this is what I was capable of doing at the time. Does that mean I am a bad person? Usually, you know, again, we do think self-compassion is possibly linked to guilt, which is I did something bad. It's negatively linked to shame, which is, and therefore I am bad. And this is where the common humanity comes in, understanding the complexity. Self-compassion sees very clearly I made a mistake. I did wrong. I'm really going to try to commit as much as I can not to doing it again. But it doesn't say, and therefore, I am a hopeless, worthless, and, and, you know, start calling yourself names, which actually that type of behavior is usually what keeps people from taking responsibility in the first place. They don't want to admit that, yeah, I'm a horrible person. No, I'm not. It must be your fault, you know? So yeah, some of it is kind of your philosophical approach. Do I think self-compassion has to be earned? I think all human beings, by their very nature, were all born into this world as innocent babies. You know, we don't have a lot of control. We certainly didn't choose our genes. We don't have a lot of control about how we're we're raised, the influences that condition our habitual patterns. And therefore, I personally, I think all people are intrinsically worthy of compassion, but that doesn't mean we condone behavior. Paul Gilbert has a great phrase for this. He says, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility.
0: Well, a lot of existential philosophers talked about that as well.
2: Yeah. So, and I think that's the view of self compassion. And again, the empirical support seems to show if you help people like a study by Greens and Chen out of Berkeley, they had people think about something they had done to hurt someone they felt really bad about. And half the people, they helped them by thinking about the three components of self compassion in relation to what they did. I think they had a self-esteem control group and a neutral writing control group. People who were helped to be self-compassionate about what they did were more likely to take responsibility to own it. Wow, I really messed up. we more motivated to try to repair the harm. I like
0: right. that. I really like that. It sounds like you're a very compassionate person yourself. <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> that's a way of life. I certainly walk my walk. Not that I'm always perfectly compassionate. That's your business. whole point. Yeah. yeah. The nice thing about practicing self-compassion is you don't claim, I don't claim to be mindful all the time or never to be reactive or never be out of line, but I'm pretty quick always to come to a place of self-compassion. Because what choice do we have? I mean, if it's a choice between being self-compassionate mess or being perfect, good luck with the perfection. That's what most of us try to be. Okay, I just will never make a mistake. I will be perfect. And I just try really, really hard to be perfect. You know, good luck. It's just not reality. Mm-hmm.
0: Have you found a link to reduced levels of perfectionism?
2: Yeah. So basically, you know, if you look at there's two part way of measuring perfectionism, one is how high you strive your standards, the goals you set for yourself. The other is how you treat yourself when you don't meet your goals. And so self-compassion is unrelated to how your standards or how, how you know, the aims you adopt for yourself or the goals you set for yourself. But it's very negatively linked to how much you beat yourself up when you don't meet your standards. So it's negatively linked to what they call maladaptive perfectionism. There's nothing wrong with aiming high. You know, it's just that if you aim high and you fail and you beat yourself up, you can become afraid of failure. You're going to stop trying. So all that doesn't happen with self yeah.
0: And that links to your earlier point that conscientiousness is positively correlated with
2: it is. Yeah. And motivation. A lot of people think that self-compassion is going to undermine motivation. The data shows just the opposite, right? So again, fear of failure, performance anxiety, undermining your self-confidence, all of these are associated with self-criticism. That's going to undermine your motivation. But being a support, like kind of think of that encouraging, kind, supportive coach who may give you criticism, but it's going to be constructive criticism as opposed to harsh belittling criticism. That type of support is much more effective for motivating ourselves than our usual pattern, which is just to say I'm a hopeless loser. I'm ashamed of myself. You know, how good a motivator is that? <laughs>
0: I don't think Trump ever says that to himself.
2: He doesn't, no. So, yeah.
0: I want to wrap up just for the listeners some like amazing findings you know you found that self compassion is linked to less anxiety and depression it's linked to a lack of self criticism less rumination lower levels of stress as well as the stress hormone cortisol higher levels of well being a higher motivation to learn and grow like a mastery mindset found self compassion was found to help people after divorce cope with divorce cope with early childhood traumas cope with chronic physical pain it's important for relationships
2: yeah She's- it's not selfish. It actually improves relationships. Very important wow. point.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Great point. I and mean, there's also cultural differences in self compassion. Is that right? Is our country, are we like low? In yeah.
2: You know, I wish more people would do research on this. I did a study with two of my grad students like in 2005. Almost nothing has been done, which is kind of annoying because I don't have time to do everything. But I had a student from Thailand and a student from Taiwan. And the idea is, you know, it's not like a simple east-west difference. In Thailand, people were most self-compassionate. They actually, it's more infused in the culture. Buddhism is a big part of the culture. Like, for instance, most men, they go on a week, silent meditation before they get married. They take it seriously. Taiwan is more confusion. And they use self-criticism as a way to motivate themselves. So we found that highest levels were in Thailand, lowest levels were in Taiwan and the United States is in between. But interestingly, in all three cultures, we have got the strength, same strong positive association between self-compassion and well-being. But even if you're in a culture that doesn't promote self-compassion, you're still gonna personally benefit by having more rather than less of it.
0: Still helps. Well, that's just wonderful. That's a great place to end, I think, because okay. it shows that anyone, except maybe narcissists, can benefit. Thank you so much for your um, okay. generosity today. Thanks for listening to The Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next season for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. That's better